Do you have questions about life and faith and God that remain unanswered? Do you feel like the Christian cliches are shallow and don't really get to the truth? Is this whole Christian thing rather uncertain for you? And, and does that uncertainty exclude you from true spirituality? My name is Skip Collins, and for the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to explore concepts of life and faith and the Bible and Christianity. We'll challenge our traditional views and ideas, which at times will probably make us a little uncomfortable, but hopefully we'll come out on the other side more connected to our faith, to God, and to what we believe. So let's jump in to deeply spiritual, but rather uncertain. For the past few years, I have been on a quest to discover who God really is. I feel like when I read the Bible, there are a number of different gods all presented as God. There's this God who created everything that is beautiful, a God that breathed life, a God that spoke a word in a perfectly balanced universe and ecosystem was put in place. This God was personal and close. This God walked in the garden with those that he had created and he had conversations with them. But then there's this God that is angry and vengeful and jealous. A God that will condemn an entire generation for complaining a God that would send floods and fire to wipe away those that anger him, a God that would order genocide and destruction and violence, a God whose wrath is unpredictable and seemingly unfair, a God who would wipe out a guy's entire family and ruin his life just to prove a point. Be afraid. Be very afraid. But then I read of a God who is incarnate, a God who gave up all of his rights as God and came as a man, a God who came not to be served, but to serve. This God sacrificed himself to save those that complained or turned their backs on him or worshiped other idols. This God tells me that I can call him Abba or Daddy, and I can live in his grace and forgiveness. So this is my struggle. Which version of God is really God? I know that there are some people that are able to say the answer is D, all of the above. His character encompasses all of these things. And that is certainly what I told myself for most of my life. And if that's where you land on this, then I'm not here to try to change your mind. But when I've tried to land there, I have this massive uncertainty about how I relate to this God. Do I love him or do I fear him? Some would say both, but the truth is I don't know how to do that. How do I love someone, I mean, really love someone that I'm afraid of? I suppose I can show respect 
towards someone that I fear, but even then I think it might be an act. I can act like I love someone that I fear, but I can't imagine that I can really love them. The disciple John wrote that there is no fear in love and that perfect love drives fear away. So how do I love and fear at the same time? So this is where I want to go for at least the next few podcasts. How do we come to terms with who God is? I'm not sure how many weeks this will take. We'll just get started and figure out where we end up. Before we jump into the detail, there are a few kind of big picture things that I want to mention when we speak about who God is. The first one is this. What you believe or don't believe about God will define how you live your life. That's why this question of who God is is so important. So let me say it again. What you believe or don't believe about God will define how you live your life. I believe this is true whether you're a Christian or a Muslim or even an atheist. For example, if I believe that God is angry and to be feared, then I will live my life in fear of not getting everything right. I mean, I know people like this. They always wonder if they're going to make it or not. Like, where is the line? How good do I have to be to gain God's favor or to make sure God's not angry with me? Or if you believe that God is rather distant and not interested in what he's created, then you might live your life feeling like you are completely on your own. You have to figure out what is right, and you just have to go for it. There ain't nobody to trust but yourself. Or if you believe that God is full of grace and forgiveness, then you might feel like it doesn't matter how you live your life. You can like do whatever you want because there's always forgiveness available. Or maybe you don't believe in God at all, but even that leads to living your life in a certain way. I'm sure there could be a bunch more examples, and of course, we're all way more complex than my examples, but I hope you get my point. What you believe or don't believe about God makes a difference. It will, in so many ways, define how you live your life. So that's my first point. This stuff is crazy important. Secondly, let me say this. God is mystery. Now, that may sound like a cop-out. I mean, I get it. I hate people that use mystery as a cop-out. It's like, oh, it's just a mystery that we will never understand, so don't even ever really try. It's almost like they put their head in the sand, or it's like the little kid who puts his fingers in his ears and says, la, 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 I can't hear you. When I say that God is mystery, I mean something totally different than that. I love Richard Rohr's definition of mystery. He says, mystery is not something you can't know. Mystery is endless knowability. 
I picture this idea of mystery as layers upon layers. I, I peel back one layer and I realize there's another and then another and yet another. It's the, it's the realization that knowing God is a journey of constant discovery and growth. I realize that is really frustrating for some people. You may want to nail this thing and move on to eternity forever and ever, world without end, amen, done deal, next subject. But mystery doesn't work like that. Mystery is an endless journey of discovery, and God is truly mystery. Okay, my third point is this, that it is okay and it's even important to wrestle with this stuff. I talked about this a little bit last week, but there's a a really interesting but rather strange story in Genesis chapter 32. It's about a guy called Jacob. He's an old man when this story takes place, and the story goes that he's all alone one night, and this guy comes to him, and they start wrestling. We're not told who this guy is. We're not told why they're fighting, but it says that they fought, they wrestled all night long. Finally, the man that picked the fight realized he wasn't going to win, so he basically cheated, and he touched Jacob's hip and like supernaturally knocked it out of its socket. Jacob just gets more determined. He's fighting and fighting. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, What's your name? And he told him it's Jacob. And then let me read this out of verse chapter 28 of Genesis 32. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have won. The name Israel means to struggle with God. The entire nation became Israel. They wrestle with God. I love that Jacob is actually rewarded because he wrestled with God. I mean, how crazy is that? But it gives me hope for the times that I wrestle with subjects like which God is God. God is not offended or upset as I work through my uncertainty and my struggle. In fact, he welcomes it. He welcomes my uncertainty and my questions. He understands my doubt. He's not offended or insecure. It is okay to wrestle with God. And that brings me then to my last of these four kind of big points up front. The goal of our Christian faith, the goal is to know God, not just know about God. Paul says it beautifully in his letter to the church in Philippi. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. I would suggest that knowing God is the goal of the Christian life. Now, let me say something that may seem radical to some of you. It may kind of freak you out, but I'm going to say it anyway. The goal of the Christian life isn't to become like Jesus. I mean, we've heard that all of our lives. The goal is to become like Jesus. It's not. The goal is to know Jesus. Richard Rohr calls it union 
with God. The Eastern Orthodox Church calls it theosis, which is an absolutely beautiful doctrine. Theosis means becoming one with God. Now, the Orthodox are quick to point out that you can't become one with God in essence, but you can become one with God in his energies. So, for example, love, they would say, is an energy of God. So you can become one with God in your love for people. To become like Christ is the outcome of union with God or theosis. But it's not the goal of our faith. Our goal is union with God. We don't work to become like Christ. We work toward union with God. See, if my goal is to become more and more like Jesus, then my faith is performance-based. I have to do more and be more, and that is absolutely exhausting and incredibly frustrating. I know. I've been there. I've got the T-shirt. Not the T-shirt that says I've made it. The T-shirt that says I failed miserably at it. So let me say it again. Our goal is not to become like Christ. Our goal is union with God. So those are the things that we kind of want to put out there right up front as we're talking about who God is really. These, these four things, how you see God really matters. God is mysteries, layer upon layer upon layer of discovery. It's good. It's even okay to wrestle with this stuff. But the goal is to know God, not just know about him. With all that as an intro, maybe a good place to start the discussion about God in this time we have left is to look at the subject of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinitarian theology is something that I've really only begun to understand in the past few years. Before that, there are two things that I seem to remember about the Trinity. One is that it's just too difficult to understand, so don't try. I remember illustrations of eggs and ice cubes, but they all fell quite short, so you just have to accept this doctrine of the Trinity. And secondly, I don't know if this was taught or if it was just what I surmised from other places, but it's that there's this hierarchy to the Trinity. So God the Father being on the top and the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost as we called them back then, being on the bottom of this hierarchy. I was first introduced to a new view of Trinitarian theology through some Orthodox teaching. From there, I've looked at this through the eyes of a number of different theologians and traditions. And I am very much on a journey of discovery when it comes to this and very much a beginner. But I believe it's really important to wrestle with. Richard Rohr has a fairly recent book on Trinitarian theology called The Divine Dance. I highly recommend it. Brilliant book. Also, I would suggest that you just Google Orthodox Theology of the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, you'll find all kinds of stuff. If it feels a bit overwhelming, just drop me a line. I'll, I'll point you in a good direction. But when I, when I first read Orthodox theology around this, I learned that they see God as three distinct persons, but one in essence. When I read that, it really rocked my world. In the first pages of the Bible, you see God revealed as Trinity. Verse 1 of Genesis, it says, In the beginning, God created. Then in verse 2, it says, The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. In verse 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light. The Word of God, or the Logos, which is the Greek word that John uses in John chapter 1 when he says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus or the Son of God. So we see it in the first three verses of the Bible. Then in verse 26 of Genesis 1, um, it says, let us make humanity in our own image. Those words in the original language are clearly plural. God's saying, let us make humanity. The early church fathers in the third to the sixth century started using the word perichoresis to describe the relationship between the members of the Trinity. It's a Greek word that people have translated as the circle dance. Peri means around, and kerosis is the word that we get choreography from, perichoresis, the, the circle dance. It's a picture of the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not hierarchical, as I had always believed. It's an equality of persons. It's a flow. It's the dance of God. Richard Rohr makes this statement in his book, The Divine Dance. The principle of one is lonely. The principle of two is oppositional and moves you toward preference. The principle of three is inherently moving, dynamic, and generative. Man, chew on that for a bit. Should I say it again? The principle of one is lonely. And if you're as old as me, you can't help but hear the old band Three Dog Night. The principle of two is oppositional and moves you toward preference. You have to choose one or the other. You have to take sides. But the principle of three is inherently moving, dynamic, and generative. And that is the picture of God that we see in the Trinity, a God that is moving, dynamic, and generative. But let's take it a step further. Because if all this is true, then all of creation is relational. We've learned through quantum physics that nothing is static. Everything is relating to everything else in the world. Nothing stands alone. As human beings created in the image of God, we are relational. We can't stand alone. It is who we are, and it's who God is. Now, one more step. 
before we end this podcast, and this is the coolest part, so hang there with me. There's this um, interesting story in Genesis 18. It's the story of Abraham and Sarah. The chapter begins by saying that the Lord visited Abraham, and then it goes on to speak of three men that Abraham saw near his tent, and he invited them for dinner. We don't know for sure if it was three angels or God and two angels or even it was representative of the Trinity. The text doesn't really tell us, but many theologians over the years have believed that this was a picture of Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the 15th century, a Russian artist by the name of Rublev painted a very famous painting of this event. There are three men seated around a table. It's painted in iconography. That's a little strange for those of of us that grew up in evangelical Protestant America, but it's a beautiful painting. The interesting thing is the bottom of the painting, there's this little square, and people believe that there used to be a tiny little mirror glued onto the painting. I mean, how cool is that? So here you have this picture of Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sharing a meal. And as you look at it, you see yourself as part of the meal. That is the most amazing part of this dance of God. We are invited into the dance. We are welcomed in. The dance of God is to be experienced, not just understood. The God that I know is by his very nature relational, and he invites us into the relationship. There are no T's and C's that apply, no strings attached, no transactions of any kind. I mean, how cool is that? You and I are invited into the dance. Man, I love that picture of God. But what do I do with the others? Well, that's where we are going. So don't miss next week. We'll see you next time. Have a great week. Shalom. Shalom.